If not, if you have a Bible this morning and you would read along with us, and we're going to not only read this text, but also refer to some texts that are near it as we go through the message this morning. And so you may want to keep it handy and, and be able to flip and read with us as we do, through, do so throughout the sermon. Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to begin. And we're going to read the first 22 verses of Acts chapter 9. And you're going to recognize this text, likely. Um, this is one of the, I believe, three accounts where Paul's testimony is told. And certainly his experience with God is profound. And I'm grateful that he left it behind not only once, but three times in this book of Acts. Uh, but we may focus on a dis- different aspect of this example, particularly that of Ananias and um, Ananias' role in this experience. And so if you'll begin our reading with us, we're going to take, again, Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 22, and, and then we may back up in the chapters a little bit. It says this, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there, excuse me, and he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight. And inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost." And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. When he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on the name in, this name in Jerusalem? And came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very, that this is very Christ. That will conclude our reading this morning. That's reading Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. Um, the title of our message this morning, and, and we took this one scripture reading as an example of what we're going to talk about today, um, but the title of our message this morning is The Necessity of Spiritual Impressions. The Necessity of Spiritual Impressions. Now, before 
I get into the message, I guess I want to make some disclaimers, um, which I feel like is necessary sometimes that things would not be misunderstood. Um, the book of Acts in the Bible is unique. There are things that happened in this era of time that are recorded that are likely confined to this era of time. And so I don't want us leaving here with the mistaken notion as we go through some of these chapters and reference some of these stories that the exact same occurrences which occurred here are going to happen in our lives through spiritual impressions. Um, I just don't think that that's a wise thing. That day was something that was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened had a purpose that is unique to its time and place, and so I don't want to do that. I also um, want to caution something else that might arise as a result of of hearing this message, and that is um, seeking spiritual impressions in light of obeying God's Word. Um, What I have come to learn in my own Christian life is that Much of the heart of my daily life is governed by God's general revealed word. In other words, I don't need a spiritual impression to love my wife. I don't need a spiritual impression to be a faithful employee. I don't need a spiritual impression to do a great deal of many things because God's general revelation to all mankind and some specifically designed for His church He's already revealed what we're to do. And so I've heard at times people get in an emotional service and even sometimes in a spiritual service. And I heard a guy one time make the comment and it made me laugh then and it still does that when he gets up in the morning, he prays what cereal he's supposed to eat. And I thought, well, that's a little much, right? Um, I think some things God has put in my hands to make decisions and be stewards over and And there are certainly things that even the cereal you eat, God may, in his word, have principles, right? But I don't think I need a spiritual impression to know what to do in those cases. And so there is a certain experiential euphoria that comes with a spiritual impression. It often feels good. And you've been in the house of the Lord when there's been a movement of the spirit and it's a desirable place to be. And there are denominations of people, but there's also personality types which are drawn to desires of emotional euphoria. And so like a drug, they constantly seek that euphoria. But the end goal of spiritual impressions and even spiritual enlightenment is not the temporary euphoria that we gain from that experience. The fact that when I got saved, I felt wonderful. I felt great peace when there had been turmoil. That particular feeling was not the end goal of seeking God and salvation. It was a byproduct of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the removal of this fallen spirit of Adam and the replacement of God or of Christ's spirit within me. That's where it came from. Now I'm, I'm reconciled to God and I'm forgiven of my sins and the Spirit has an abiding there. All of those things are more important than the good feeling, which was temporary. And there's a lot you could mistaken in what I just said, and I hope you don't do that. Point being, I don't want us just running out of here and saying, hey, I need to have all these good feelings that the Spirit might speak to me. Um, however, I don't want to neglect this neglected truth of God's word, because I would contend today that much of what is wrong with what appears to be Christianity in the world and much which has been given rise to recently, even in circles, um, that are near us is this static unspiritual obedience to God's Word without the author of God's Word giving us impressions and directions directly. And let me say this, if you've been saved 
and you do not have a relationship with God to the extent where he is giving you impressions to do things, then you're missing out on what I would consider some of the most rich blessings that God grants to us that are saved. And that is to be a part of something where we are walking by faith and we don't altogether understand what we're doing and we don't altogether understand the result of what we're about to do, but we have an unmistakable impression from God's Holy Spirit that is very unique. Now let me say this also before we get into the the message. There are times when People who are not living in accordance to God's word want to claim spiritual impressions so as to soothe their conscience. Or in other words, I've seen some people who are constantly serving God and and really trying to do their best that are... People will try to compel them who are not faithful in what God has commanded them to do already. And they'll get up and they'll say, we need to do this as a church. And the church is confused because they're saying, well, where have you been? And where has been your engagement on the daily? Where has been your obedience to God's word outside of this one impression? But let me say this, those that walk with God and receive spiritual impressions are those often who are doing it consistently. Or in other words, I can't govern my own life the way I want to, and then when I come to church once in a while, say, well, now I need a spiritual impression, and think that I'm going to get one, and that then I can act in accordance with that outside of what I'm called in my duties and responsibilities as a Christian and a church member to do. There comes a coming together here. Somebody who walks with God and receives spiritual impressions is someone who is going to be compelled and desirous to obey his word no matter what. And they may fail to do so from time to time, but it is not going to be a lifestyle. This can be particularly true with immature young Christians who get up randomly in a spur of emotion And you've probably seen that before and try to compel the church to action. And it's pretty new for them and they have not been living faithful for quite some time. And so as we look at this text and the text preceded, I see in the book of Acts something that's going on here and that really jumped out to me this week was there is a series of people through beginning really towards the beginning of Acts, but I'm going to start in Acts chapter 6 that are getting spiritual impressions from the Lord. And I think there are some things that we can learn about these examples of the spiritual impressions that they receive and be benefited from these examples. So we begin in Acts chapter 6, and this is where God calls deacons to be a, a role or an office in his church. And very often what happens when we begin the discussion on deacons is we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we begin to read here the qualifications But I would contend this morning that the fundamental or the foundational qualifications of a deacon, the most important ones, are found here in Acts chapter 6. At the early church, we find that there was problems taking place because the apostles are having to take their time away from spreading the word of God and from teaching the people and put their hands towards more natural concerns that would arise amongst a group of people. And so the Bible teaches us that they were instructed to set, up, set aside seven men of honest report and full of the Holy Ghost. And so if you look there real quick in Acts chapter 6, what I want you to pay attention to as we read this is notice the emphasis that the author has on the qualifications of these men. There are some natural qualifications in 1 Timothy, but to me, these supersede and precede those natural qualifications. Here's what it says in verse 5 of Acts 6. And the saying, so having these men, pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, notice how it describes him, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Notice what happens as a result of these men being 
being added to the church in this way. And the word of God increased. And the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians of them, uh, Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with them. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So notice here, these men are set aside and they're set aside to attend to the natural concerns of the church. And yet what they're looking for is spiritual men full of the Holy Spirit. And it It's fascinating to me that whenever Stephen is going and doing all of these various activities, that those opposing the early church did not go to the apostle John or Paul or the other apostles, but they initially engaged with Stephen, the deacon. And it tells us here that they could not reason with or overcome the wisdom and power by which Stephen spake. And so Stephen continues to engage with these people. And we read the whole next chapter, and it's a good example that our deacons could read. And to me, it's a very humbling thing because as you notice Stephen is talking to these men, notice the systematic truth that he is, without a Bible, recalling to these men. It is not... I'm not shy to say he is preaching a sermon to these men who are actively opposing him. And as he's realizing the heightened tension and perhaps seeing that they're going to begin to seize him and that his life is in jeopardy, he does not turn away from the risk of continuing to proclaim the gospel to these men. But the Bible tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit, that his face shone like the face of an angel as he continued to proclaim the gospel to the very men that had crucified Jesus. He was fearless. And it comes at the end of chapter 7, if you'll look. And he begins to finish this message that he is, and, and what I think is happening here, because he's not finished with the story, I think what happens here is that he's getting interrupted. And so he cuts to the point because his life is almost over. Because if you notice the sequence of events, he's just going through the whole Old Testament, but he stops at Solomon. I think he had to stop at Solomon because they're about to kill him. And he looks directly at them and he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised of the heart. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers, so do ye. In other words, here's what's happening. He has been led by the Holy Spirit to proclaim this message of truth to the people. And these men are completely rejecting it. He preaches this message and it comes to the end of this chapter and it tells us in verse 58 that as they are seizing upon him, they're gritting their teeth in anger, looking at him. And they're trying to kill him. They're going to kill him. And they take their garments and they set it at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul. Now, I love that scripture. I think it directly connects to what we read in chapter 9 when Jesus asks him, is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? Here he is watching the dying words of this man who looks like Jesus. I mean, is there any man in all the Bible that is described in the end of his life quite like Stephen and his appearance being similar to that of Jesus? Even his words. Father, forgive them. Do not lay this sin to their charge. And Saul is consenting to this. And they're taking and they're putting their garments by him that he might protect them because he's happy as to what's taking place. But yet, Stephen's words, as well as Jesus in Acts chapter 9, to me reveals that the Holy Spirit is powerfully working in this moment. And Saul is witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit in the death of Stephen. 
Now, this is maybe a, it sounds morbid to say, but I wonder what it's like when the Holy Spirit's power is demonstrated through someone's death. Heard of stories we can read from long ago of martyrs who have died at the stake preaching the gospel, have died with the refusal to recant their faith in Christ. And to me, there must be an added power that is involved when a man or a woman is going even unto death in obedience to the Holy Spirit and living as they're dying, surrendered to and manifesting the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Stephen. And Saul is witnessing this. Now, we go into chapter 8. And I want you to notice in chapter 8, here's what it says. And Saul, this is verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And, and please stay with me because there's a point in bringing out all these, uh, these accounts this morning. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at the time, there was a great persecution against the church, which, which, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried to his bur- Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering into every house and hauling men and women committed in them to prison. Therefore they were scattered abroad, excuse me, therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them, and the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So chapter six and seven, we see this deacon following the Spirit of the Lord. And God beginning to plant and sow the seeds of Saul's conversion in the death of Stephen. And then it changes to the next topic and it tells us about what I think is another deacon, Philip. So if you go back to that original list, you see Stephen was first and Philip was second. Some people claim this is a different Philip. I don't think it's the case. Whether it is or not doesn't really matter. This is Philip and Philip has come and he's being led to Samaria. That's an important detail. Remember, Jews and Gentiles are two different ethnicities of people. And then as we learned on Wednesday night in the fourth chapter of the book of John, Samarias were considered these untouchable people because they were half Jew, half Gentile. And so they had their own location. There had been their own little province. There had been fighting. There had been a disagreement, a very serious religious disagreement between Jews and Samaritans, even in so much that the people marveled that Jesus would talk to a Samaritan woman. And so here, Philip is being led to go to a type of person which was not customary for Jews to go to. But he had a spiritual impression. This morning, Our spiritual impressions, we certainly encourage you in the house of the Lord that when you have a spiritual impression to participate in the service, you ought to. But I would contend this morning that that is the least instructive in all of the Bible is what we're to do while we're here. Almost every example of spiritual impressions that we find in the scriptures don't take place when the church is meeting. It's what's happening when we're beyond these walls. And Philip has a spiritual impression to grow to a group of people whom his people kept at a distance. Whom his people did not commonly associate with. And so I would pause for a moment and I would say to us, one of the necessary boundaries that we would put Put, uh, or take down because our culture tends not to do this. Our culture tends to have us to live in compartments and to speak to people and act among people of similar interest and occupation and living places and standards of living. And yet what we find in the life of Jesus, as well as in the ministry of the church during the book of Acts, is that there was no Uh, There was no hierarchy of importance among people, but God often led men and women to go to those who were downtrodden or not part of their social circle to minister the gospel because what God knew was that there were people in various places that had a desperate need for Jesus Christ. 
you and I are called to help people that in a social setting is perceived to be beneath us, different than us. I've said it before. I'll say it again. It always bothers me that we are one race of people in this room. I would love a multi-ethnic, multi-racial congregation. Why? It broadens our opportunity. I won't get into explaining that. Be happy to in private. It bothers me. What, why can't we have multiple races and multiple ethnicities and even to the point of multiple languages, though that would be tri- a trial for us? Are we looking in those places? Are we going to those places as we feel inclined? I would hope that we would never be pushed away. Here, Philip goes to these Samaritans and he finds something surprising. To me, at least, they receive him. They hear the word. They obey. And then Peter and John join him and they begin to preach the gospel and more and more it's received. And then something really strange happens. Philip gets another spiritual impression. He's in the middle of a great revival where all these people whom formerly had not heard the gospel got saved. They're beginning to be obedient to the word. Even some extreme examples happen in this chapter. And then all of a sudden, he gets this spiritual impression to leave this great revival and go to the desert. And so he obeys. And as he goes out there, There's an Ethiopian who's coming back from Jerusalem because he had gone there to worship. And really at the core of his question is, who is Jesus? Who is the Messiah that I'm reading about? And he didn't know the answer to this vital question. And it just so happens if you look in verse 26 of chapter 8, listen to what it reads. And the angel of the Lord spake Unto Philip, saying, Arise and go, go towards the south, under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is in the desert. Now, notice two similarities between the previous account and this account. God gave Ananias, and we'll get to that in a moment, Acts chapter 9. He said, I want you to go to this exact place, to this exact person's house, and speak to this exact person. Now, here, He's leading Philip and he says, I want you to go to this exact location. I'm not going to tell you what's there, but you'll find out whenever you get there. I say that to say this. I don't know that every spiritual impression that we have is exactly like that. But I'm not discounting the fact that it most certainly can be. What a rich, step back for a moment. What a rich experience that's available to the Christian as God sees fit, that God can so providentially lead your life that you could be at an exact place at an exact time for an exact purpose that God has. That's a pretty wonderful thing. You tell me what business, what company, what profession you can get into where that happens. No, God can do that. And you can meet somebody in the exact moment of their life where they're receptive to the gospel as God sees fit to deliver to them. Verse 27, he says this, and he rose and went. That's worth noting. He rose and went. Ananias did the same thing. God said, go right there. And so they did. I want you to notice this. They were available to do that. God, they had availability for God to do that. Now, there's five men in the Bible that here at some point say, here am I, send me. And all five of those men, some of the Old Testament, some of the New, had availability towards God. They made themselves available. Why is busyness a sin? In part, because it takes away our spiritual availability to God's spiritual impressions. If God says to you in the midst of your busy life, go do this. Go to this place. 
And yet you have committed so much responsibility upon your back that you're going to fail to meet the needs of many, many people and thus give a bad name for yourself and ultimately for being a child of God that you're undependable. And your life is swamped all the time. It has almost become a, a way of bragging today at times for people to tell how busy they are. As a Christian, that's not something to brag about. Do you want to be available to the Lord for incidents like this? It's necessary to be available to God. And they were. And as God told them to do something, they arose and they went and did it. He continues in verse um, 27. It says this. He arose and went. Behold, a man of Ethiopia and eunuch of great authority and a Candace queen of the Ethiopians who had the charge of all of her treasure and had to come to Jerusalem for to worship was returning and sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. I love how the Lord worked here. Go to this place. So he goes and he gets to that place. He doesn't know what he's doing there. He just shows up and he waits. And then he sees this man. And God says, that's the place. That's the man. Go join yourself to him. This morning... I'll ask this open-ended question to you to consider. Has that ever happened to you? Has it ever happened to you? <clears throat> Heard about a man one time who was at a church service. And um, at the end of the service, during the service, he was very distracted, according to the preacher that told the story. Very distracted, couldn't focus whatsoever, and came to the end of the service. And the man said, will you follow me? And the preacher said, okay. And so he got one of the deacons and they began to follow him. And he walked out the building and he went a quarter mile down the road and he walked into a bar. And he went in there and he stopped the music in the bar and he said something in essence of, I don't know why God sent me here to this place, but God did. And I feel like there's somebody here that I'm supposed to talk to. And he spoke for about five to ten minutes and he left. And as he was on his way out, a man ran out and grabbed him in tears and said, I'm a Presbyterian minister and I'm going through basically a midlife crisis and I've been trying to cope and escape and I've been coming here to do it. You were sent here for me. Wow, what a spiritual impression. Why can't that happen? That's a pretty profound example. But it's a modern day one that goes in line with the nature of how the Spirit can speak to our hearts. Now, we're not to go and search for these things, I don't believe. I don't think I'm supposed to wait and say, okay, Lord, I'm ready. Here I am. But did you ever have experiences in your own life where people, perhaps it was in service whenever you were lost, And people came back to you and they spoke a few words to you. And it was the piercing of their words. Not all the messages of the preacher. But it was the piercing of their words. Or perhaps someone got up and they testified. And it was things that had rattled your heart or discouraged your heart. And they begin to speak precisely to the secret struggles of your own heart. The doubts of your own heart. And you know as they're up speaking, and perhaps it was the preacher, perhaps it wasn't, but you know that that day, at that moment, God was speaking directly to you. Now that makes a much more significant impact on a person than whenever uh, we cannot perceive that this person was necessarily led by a spiritual impression. Or in other words, when I can tell, like Stephen, someone is full of the Holy Spirit and they're speaking something very unlikely in a very unusual place or unusual way, and yet I know because of the nature of the circumstance that God is speaking through His Spirit directly to me. Here it leads us into Acts chapter 9. He goes to Philip. Philip goes, excuse me, to Ethiopian eunuch. He speaks to him. The man ends up getting saved. History tells us a lot of things which may or may not be true. That The gospel then from that man went down to Ethiopia and spread in 
North Africa and parts of Africa. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I do know that it changed that man's life and eternity. It goes in Acts chapter 9 and it continues with spiritual impressions. Not only does Saul or Paul have a spiritual impression, but then a terrifying one happens to Ananias. And that's one of the points that really struck me as I read this text. Saul, it told us in verse 1 of chapter 9, is now, the way it's described, breathing out threatenings and slaughters. In my mind, there is no doubt that Saul was a murderer. He was not just one to commission to seize people. Paul killed people, in my estimation, the way that I read these texts. And now he has the legal authority to go seize people. And the people in Damascus, it tells us, knows that he's coming. They know even that he has uh, the authority, the power to do that. And they are afraid that he is coming. And Ananias reveals that as he is talking to the Lord. Saul gets saved. He goes to Damascus, is in this man's house. And the Lord appears to Ananias and says, go to Saul. And Ananias has some very warranted questions. Uh, He has authority to kill us. And I'm supposed to go and talk to him? And that's a point that I want to really seize on in the text. When we follow spiritual impressions, it typically has significant risk to ourselves. It did to Stephen, didn't it? He lost his life. Here's here's very often what our sinful, corrupt hearts, as well as Satan, can use against us in preventing us to follow spiritual impressions. We feel a spiritual impression to go to somebody or say something or, or, or perform a certain act. And then if you're like me, my mind begins to analyze the potential effects if I do that. Well, what if they say this back? What if it shuts the door and they don't want to hear anything about it? And they get angry at me. And now our friendship is ruined and it ruins future or potential opportunities to speak to that person. What if, and the what if game causes me when I analyze the potential of that situation to draw back from following the spirit of the Lord. Because ultimately what I'm analyzing and therefore concluding is there is too much personal risk to perform this action. I had a student come into my office one day or come into my room one day and began to tell me all about problems she was having. And she's sitting here and she's pouring out all this toxicity from her life and her her growing up and her dad and all these things. And as she's doing this, my heart is just pounding because I know what she needs. And yet I know what the rules tell me that I can do. I didn't know her very well. It was three or four weeks into the semester. She was a really quiet kid. And she struck me as a non-religious kid. So I listened to her for probably 15 or 20 minutes without saying a word. And the whole time I'm praying, Lord, do I say something? Do I do anything? Well, I did. In a public school with a student, a teacher began to talk to her about the Lord. Here's what that led to. It it piqued her curiosity. So she asked where I went to church. And so I invited her to come. And she did. And it just so happened that her and my wife really hit it off. And so I kind of stepped out of the picture. And they began to communicate with one another. And she would come over to my house to talk with my wife. One night, she called late. And she said, can I come over? We said, sure. We met her at our front door, and she was rejoicing because she had gotten saved. I tell that example not, I hope you don't think it's for selfish reasons. To illustrate, there was a really big risk involved. And I would be lying if I did not say that very similar or exact situations did not come up, and I pulled back because I did. 
It was a spiritual impression. I didn't know how she was going to act. I didn't know what the end of the story would be. That's one of the deceiving things about reading spiritual impressions in the Bible is that you and I already know what the end result is. And so it gives us this false sense of what spiritual impressions are like. When in reality, when you're walking by faith, you may end up like Stephen or you may end up like Ananias. You don't really know. It may end up from your vantage point failing. Stephen gets killed. Or it may, the scales might fall off and you might witness this man go and preach to those whom he had come to persecute. What's necessary is that what we don't do is calculate the personal risk to us. There's a brother shared with me this past week that he's been called to go on a mission trip by the Lord to Pakistan. Doesn't that give you room to pause for a moment? Like, don't you say right when you hear that, reckless, dangerous. But isn't that response, isn't built into that response a carnal boundary that says death is the worst case scenario? Let me tell you the worst case scenario. Him not acting on that. And those Pakistani people that God was going to send him to dying and going to hell as a result of a man not going. That's the worst case result. What's the best case result? Whatever happens to his life, I hope God preserves him. I hope no danger comes to him. But whatever happens, don't you think that as the scripture teaches, sometimes what has to happen is for a a seed to fall to the ground and die before it brings forth much fruit. Isn't the better thing that a man follow God's direction and that then God is able to, and, and I said this as we were talking, whether it's to be used in their judgment, I don't know. They heard and they rejected. Or, whether God's done it because there are sincere people that truly want the truth. He has a spiritual impression. My flesh says, back away. Don't do it. Don't go. And it's because far too much calculated into that is the risk to self. Ananias steps out. He begins to help this man. Now, in the very next chapter, or excuse me, in the very next part of this chapter, Saul wants to go to Jerusalem and join himself to the apostles or the disciples, I think is the way it's worded. And guess what they do? They say, no, we know about this guy. I assume they were suspecting he was trying to creep in among them to find out who they were so he could kill them. I suspect that. And then another man takes a risk. You know what his name was? Barnabas. Barnabas steps in. He says, I saw what this man did in Damascus. It's real. This morning, I could go into Acts chapter 10. Peter had a spiritual impression to go to the Gentiles, Cornelius' house. In chapter 11, his spiritual impression was, um, was brought to the carpet by the elders and said, what were you doing? And thankfully, those spiritual men perceived that it truly was a spiritual impression from the Lord. Go to Acts chapter 13. What do you read? Paul and Barnabas were given a spiritual impression to go on a missionary journey through the Gentile world. And you go through the book of Acts. You get to chapter either 15 or 16. Guess what happens? They're wanting to go somewhere into Asia. And guess what God says? Don't go there. Why did God say don't go there? Well, because what God had was a group of people in a different area called Macedonia that was going to receive the word. And so he prohibits them from going one place because what God knows is you can't be at the same place at the same time or two different places at the same time. And so he says, no, you're forbidden to go to Mycenae and and to go to, there was another place and to Asia. Don't go there. And so they have to wait. And then God in a dream says to them, there's a man saying, come to us. And it's the famous Macedonian call. He received a spiritual impression. And they went. And much of the New Testament is written to churches that are found in Macedonia. 
This morning, I think I've belabored the point a little too hard. Here's what I'll say. You and I need spiritual impressions. We should have them where God leads us to do things that involve risk to ourselves for the welfare of other people. That should not come, as I've already said, at the expense of our daily obedience to God's word. Don't go seeking it. But is there an extent to which that in our prayers, we ought to lift up to the Lord and say, Lord, I am available to be deployed at your choosing. I'm here. And I know just by mere, I would assume rather, by mere statistics that there are people within a close proximity to my physical location or within the circle of influence that I have who have a spiritual need that you know would be receptive to me coming and speaking to them. And you better believe there are times when you go and act upon that that you will literally be shaking Physically, and your words will be uh, shaking in what you're trying to say and trying to do. It may not be a lost person. It may be somebody in this church that has not darkened the door for 30 years, and yet you feel a burden to come back and say, you know what, you need to come back. God wants you to be a part of this body of people, and obviously at one point, you did too. And you feel a spiritual impression to go and act in that way. I would say the strength and vitality of a church is partially predicated on their members acting upon God's spiritual impressions they're given. Another way to say that is this. You can't be a strong, vibrant church if God is not spiritually impressing us to act take steps of faith to help those that we don't even know are there. This morning, I say this as an exhortation. You know this. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm not chastening you for not doing it. I'm just bringing and sitting it back in front of us and saying, well, you already know. You need to have spiritual impressions. And when you do, here's what I've done before. I've been so nervous about acting upon a spiritual impression that I called someone and said, I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your encouragement because I'm terrified. Even Ananias, what did he do? When God gave him the spiritual impression, he said, Lord, I need more clarity. And in one sense, there can be a way that we're saying that in tempting the Lord, and there can be a way that we're saying that into making sure that this is God's leadership. I'll say this in conclusion. We feel a spiritual impression. We're not sure if it's us or if it's him. You ever be there? I'm there often. And you're saying, is this just my fantiful or, or fantasy-filled mind creating this? Or, Lord, is this really you? Now, I won't tell you why I think we can very often know for sure that it is the Lord, but here's what I will say as a form of encouragement to you. Let's say that you act in good will. You're really trying to follow the Lord. And you step out of the boat and you sink. And you come to learn that wasn't the Lord, which I'll say probably happens more often than what people want to admit. And it would be helpful sometimes if we would share sometimes our spiritual failures. (laughs) Because every time that a man goes on a mission trip doesn't mean that it cultivates good ground. Sometimes he misperceived what God's Holy Spirit was telling him to do. That's okay. Let me ask you this question. Do you think you can mess up anything that God has determined to do? I don't mean we go reckless. But very often... The final thing which prevents people from acting is, what if I do something and it just messes everything up? And I would say what has brought great comfort to my heart is knowing this, I don't have the power to do that. Don't get me wrong, I want to be right every time I think God is leading me to do something, and I think you should strive to do that too. But God has calculated into his providential plan your inability to discern his voice accurately 100% of the time. In other words, you're not going to mess up something God has determined is going to happen. 
If anything, isn't the book of Esther an example of that? Esther 4.14? Mordecai says, listen, if you don't obey God, salvation will arise from another place. Because what Mordecai believed, it is God's will that the Jews be saved. This morning, there is a necessity of a spiritual impression. I'll say this if you're a young person. This does not exempt you. I would actually argue that some of the most inspiring things for a church is when young people follow spiritual impressions. Because here's what often happens, and I'm longer than I intended to be this morning, but here's what often happens. Those that are older in their Christian walk, we know what's right. We know where we need to get, where we need to be, or to some extent we do. And yet, we're constantly not where we need to be. And we're constantly distracted and bombarded by the weights of the world. And we're encouraged and we try often to respond in the way we should and we fail. But let me tell you something that, and I don't know why it's this way, I'm just making an observation. When young people who are not typically fired up for spiritual things really begin to seek God's direction and spiritual impression, it's very convicting to us that have been in the way a little longer. It's very inspiring because we think, you know what? They don't know as much and they've not seen as much and yet they're walking with God as we ought to be. We ought to be leading them and now I'm praying, God, make me like them. And it does not take long, and this has been all down through history, it does not take long when young people begin to follow spiritual impressions for the whole church to follow quickly behind it. And so here's what I would say to you, if you are a young church member and you've been saved by God's grace and you have felt spiritual impressions, follow them. Follow them, and when an elder says, you know what, you may consider this as a part of that. Trust that they might have some wisdom that you're overlooking. Take it and consider it. But follow the spiritual impression that God gives you. I would say that's one of the major distinctives of us is that we believe this all together. Because if you go down the road, and I won't name the churches, but if you go down the road and you visit these places, you're not going to hear instruction about following God's spiritual impressions upon your heart. I pray this morning didn't push too hard or belabor the point too much. I long to see that among us. And I pray that in the end, God would give us the courage to act upon the spiritual impressions that he might give us. That's our message this morning.